0: There's something about uh, an, uh, the American inf- infatuation with the royals that puzzle me. Now, I, I've been to Buckingham Palace with my two boys. I've seen the changing of the guard. I, I get the pomp and the pageantry. But to get up in the middle of the night to watch two people get married that you, that you don't know and then to realize those two people probably will be divorced in some period into the future, I, I, just, don't, I just don't get it. But people will sometimes say to me, I don't get the fact that you keep rooting for a basketball team that can't win a game. And so uh, there's some give and take, I guess, in, in all of this. But the pomp and the pageantry that's associated with the royal family across the Atlantic Ocean is a pomp and pageantry that goes way back into the Roman Empire. It goes back to the day of Jesus, It's really quite interesting when we think about the passage that we're going to study together this morning, how different Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was than the way Tiberius, the Roman emperor, would enter a city. Or even Pontius Pilate, who didn't live in Jerusalem, he lived at Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea on the coast. But he would come to Jerusalem during the large festivals so that he could keep an eye on the Jewish people. They were a great trouble to the Roman government. And he would bring with him large numbers of Roman soldiers, and he would enter Jerusalem with a great deal of pomp and and pageantry. And yet, in the story that Derek has just read to us, there's not the pomp and pageantry that Tiberius would have received. There's not the pomp and pageantry that Pontius Pilate would have received. It's an important moment. It's a monumental moment. We've read it so many times. We talk about it every every Palm Sunday, the week before Easter Sunday, that, that something of the impressiveness of the passage is dulled in our senses. Familiarity has a way of breeding contempt. And what we see when we study this passage is maybe we're just a little bit too familiar with it. It's the first event found in all four Gospels since the feeding of the 5,000. Think about that for just a moment. There's not a single event in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John until the feeding of the 5,000 that's found in all four of them. That's how, that's how monumental that event was. That's how significant that particular event was that's, that, that really made a deep impression on the early church the feeding of the 5000 there's not a single solitary event that's in all four gospels from that one till this one over a year over a year Matthew Mark and Luke and John describe events that transpired after the feeding of the 5000 but none of them center on a single event that the the other three also focus on. So this event is, is significant, it's monumental, it's very important. It was important in the early church for it to be recounted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's important in our day. It's important because it's so unlike the typical pomp and pageantry associated with the arrival of a king. But Jesus isn't any ordinary king. And this isn't any ordinary event. Jesus has been moving toward Jerusalem for quite some time. I've recounted this to you numerous times. Chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus resolutely sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Chapter 13, verse 22, Luke says he's on his way to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 17, 11, he's headed toward Jerusalem. In chapter 19, verse 11, he's drawing near to Jerusalem, and so he tells the parable that is intended to teach that the kingdom of God is not going to be fully displayed when he arrives in Jerusalem. The kingdom was inaugurated when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and placed in a, in a, in a manger in, in a stable. And the kingdom will be consummated when Jesus steps out of heaven and descends on the clouds of heaven. But he doesn't want them to think, have an overly excited uh, understanding of events that are about to transpire. It's important. It's significant. It's monumental. It's going to leave a deep impression on them. But he's not about to establish an earthly kingdom. He's not about to establish a Davidic throne in the way that they were anticipating it. And that's what that parable that we looked at last week was all about. When we come to the triumphal entry, we're on April the 2nd, A.D. 30. And I want you to notice first the heartfelt worship of King Jesus. Jesus is going to throw off the the cloak of messianic secrecy. And he's going to present himself for who he truly is. Think about this for just a moment. Over and over and over again, Jesus would heal a person and he would say, don't tell anybody about this. He resuscitated Jairus' daughter from the dead. There's Peter, James, and John in the room with Jairus, Jairus' wife, and the dead corpse, the dead body of a 12-year-old girl. And Jesus says, little one, get up. And her life returns, and Jesus says, Don't tell anybody about it. That's almost cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, there, there's something about us, the ones that wants to share, particularly something like that, don't tell anybody about it. A man with leprosy, a man that had lived on the fringes of society, a man that who, who, had been, who had been alienated from those that he loved, Jesus heals him and he says, I don't want you to say anything to anybody about how this happened. But now he's about to acknowledge by fulfilling a prophecy that was made approximately 500 years prior, that those with eyes to see will see that prophecy come to fruition. Those with ears to hear will hear when the words that Jesus speaks and the commands that he gives, ancient prophecies be fully being fulfilled. They were fulfilled at his birth. The long-awaited, anticipated Messiah was born, and now they're about to be fulfilled again in, in the greatest of ways when Jesus enters Jerusalem on what we call Passion Week. In one week, the next Sunday, the following Sunday, the tomb will be empty. But until that empty tomb Jesus is going to go through an arduous week, a difficult week, a troubling week, a discouraging week in many, in many instances. And so what, we, what, we, what I want us to notice here is how courageous Jesus is in verse 28. Look again at verse 28. He's going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. What Luke doesn't tell us about was the previous night… Jesus had been anointed by Mary of Bethany at a gathering at the home of Simon the leper. Jesus had been anointed, and no one actually comprehended the the magnitude of the moment. Luke doesn't tell us about that event. Matthew, Mark, and, and John do, but not Luke. Why would Luke not mention the anointing by Mary of Bethany? It's so monumentally significant. It's so overwhelmingly impressive. She would take a year's, a a vial that was equal to a year's wage, break it open, pour it over his feet, over his head. Mark mentions the head. John mentions the feet, but Luke doesn't mention it. Well, I've mentioned, I've said to you several times, this is the longest book in the New Testament. Luke's going to fill up an entire papyrus scroll. He's having to be very selective in what he records and doesn't record. And he's already told us about Jesus being anointed in an earlier instance. He was anointed by a woman that had once been a a lady of the night. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. It's a completely different episode than what happened in Bethany on April the 1st, A.D. 30 at the home of Simon the leper when Mary of Bethany anointed him. So Luke's, he's told us about one anointing by a woman very different than Mary of Bethany, but a woman that experienced the forgiveness of Jesus for her sins. And now Jesus leaves Bethany on April the 2nd, Sunday morning, and he begins to head toward Jerusalem. He's only a few miles from Jerusalem. And notice he's out in front. He's leading the way. He knows what's before him. He knows there's going to be conflict. There's going to be intrigue. There's going to be betrayal and denial and crucifixion. He's not dragging his feet. He's so brave and he's so courageous. He's going to be a beautiful example of what genuine, authentic, true leadership is all about. Not only in this, but in the animal that he rides into Jerusalem on. But in in verse 28, he's leading the way. And then in verses 29 through 34, really a significant part of the passage. Uh, Percentage wise, there's a lot of attention given to verses 29 through 34. And this is where Jesus gives very detailed instructions about securing for him a donkey, very specific instructions. He's going to send two of his disciples to a nearby village. It's very likely that he has prearranged this event so that there would be a donkey there for him. It's very likely he's spoken to someone and said, I want you to have a donkey that's never been used for a secular purpose, never been used in the fields, never been ridden by another person. And I want you to have it here on a particular day. And I'm going to send two of my disciples And they're going to untie the donkey because I'm going to tell them where it's going to be because you're going to have it there. And just to make sure that it's my disciples, you're going to ask them, what are you doing? And their response will be, the Lord has need of it. And that will be the indication that I've sent them. So it could be a premeditated, prearranged event If that were the case, that shows you how important it was to Jesus. That Jesus went to such an extent that he would have a donkey prepared, a donkey that had never been ridden, a donkey that had never been used, in a particular location, on a particular day, and he would give his disciples the words to say. Now, it could be it's a sign of omniscience. That Jesus just knew the donkey would be there. We all believe in the fact that Jesus was omniscient. He knew things that nobody else could know. He he had insight that no ordinary human being could have. It, It could be omniscience. And that when the disciples say the Lord has need of it, then the man would realize that this is probably something associated possibly with Jesus, and he would allow it to go. either way, it shows how very, very important this event is. Now, with all of the pomp and pageantry of the Roman government, they would never ride into a city Tiberius or a king or a general like Titus, who eventually became emperor. They would never ride in on a donkey. In David's day, donkeys were, were something of the, of the beast of a, of, of a monarch, but not in Jesus' day. The pomp and pageantry of the Roman Empire would be the, the, the emperor on a war horse surrounded by military personnel, the flags flying, the trumpets blaring, the, the precursor to his arrival, the gathering of the people in the streets. But you don't see that kind of pomp and pageantry here. The, the people that are crying out, the people that are worshiping, they're not the ones in Jerusalem. They're the ones that are traveling with Jesus from Bethany. These are people who saw his miracles. These were the Galilean pilgrims that were coming up to Jerusalem to worship in the Passover. It's the Passover season. Jerusalem would have been anywhere from thirty to 50,000 people. 50,000 if you count the, the suburbs in the, in the nearby villages. There would be anywhere in the neighborhood of 200 to 350,000 people that would descend in and on Jerusalem for the celebration of the Jewish Passover. They would come from all over the ancient world the Jewish people. It was a once in a lifetime journey, a once in a lifetime trip, and there would be hundreds of thousands of them. They'd be they'd be gathered in Jerusalem, but they would travel in caravans, particularly from Galilee because of robbers and thieves. So they would travel in large groups. And so Jesus is traveling into Jerusalem with his disciples and and other Galilean pilgrims. And they catch something of the significance of the moment. At least some of them do. John tells us the disciples didn't understand it. The disciples didn't put all of the pieces of the puzzle together. But those with eyes to see and ears to hear... Heard resonating in their mind is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Listen to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt. The fall of a donkey. Now Matthew mentions two donkeys. Well, why would there have been two? Well, this is an animal that's never been ridden. Most of you don't know who John Wayne is. I grew up watching John Wayne movies. My dad was a big John Wayne fan. He was a he, he was a cowboy's cowboy. Well, Jesus wasn't John Wayne. Jesus wasn't a cowboy. This is an animal that had never been ridden. There's a raucous crowd. There's. They're shouting, and there's going to be singing, and there's going to be great celebration going on. And Matthew mentions the mother's, the cult of the mother, which would probably have walked right right alongside him. They're, they're going to put their garments on the back of the donkeys to act as a saddle. Then John tells us they laid down palm branches, and, and here they're laying down their, their cloaks. It's going to be a red carpet treatment. For those with eyes to see, 500 years of waiting, 500 years of anticipation, 500 years of longing are all coming to fruition right here on that day, April the 2nd, A.D. 30, on what we call Palm Sunday. And notice he comes not on a stallion, but on a donkey, not on a war horse, but on an animal that represented peace. He comes as the prince of peace. He comes as a conquering king, but not to conquer a rebellious nation or to thrust out the Roman army. He, he came to be the prince of peace. He came to bring peace to troubled hearts. And notice he's described as humble. That's not something that you would describe a Roman emperor, a Roman dignitary, a Roman governor like Pontius Pilate, not even the the arrogant scum like Annas and Caiaphas. Now, who are Annas and Caiaphas? They were the most important religious people in the Jewish faith. you say, Pastor, that's kind of hard calling them scum. Well, they are going to be complicit. They're going to be the instigators. They're going to be the prime movers in the murder of Jesus Christ. There was nothing laudatory about them. There was nothing, nothing to emulate about Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest. His father-in-law was Annas. Annas was something like the godfather of Jerusalem. Next to the Roman governor, he was the most important and powerful person in the city of Jerusalem. So humility—that's that's not something that Annas and Caiaphas would have been aware of. That's not something that. that that a Roman emperor, a Roman governor would ever be accused of. We think of humility as a sign of weakness. You don't find many books on leadership extolling the virtue of humility. Try as you may, read as you will. There aren't many chapters in many books, Christian or secular, that talk about humility. Humility. You do hear things about leaders. You give her an inch, she'll take a mile. You hear that said about leaders sometimes. You'll hear people say, well, set up the chairs and sweep the floors, and then when I come and speak, uh, it'll all be ready for me. But you don't find many. Well, you know, it's not in my job description. It's not my job description to set up the chairs. That's what you find in leadership magazines. That's what you find in leadership journals. That's why leadership doesn't talk about... It talks about building teams, but not being humble leaders. You don't find that in the church or out of the church that often. But that's exactly what we see about Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way, although he existed in the form of God... Which is just Paul's way of saying he actually was God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. He didn't just pretend to be a servant; he be, he became a servant. To say that he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped is to say that he didn't use his deity to his own advantage. When Satan said, turn the stone into bread, you deserve it, he continued to go hungry, because he was going to be the leader of a people who couldn't turn stones into bread. If he's going to say to them, trust God to be your provider, he's going to show them what it means to trust God to be their divider. He didn't use his miraculous powers for himself. When he was surrounded in the garden and all of his disciples had abandoned him, he could have called down a legion of angels to rescue him, but he didn't. He could have called down a legion of angels to remove him from the cross, but he didn't. Why? Because although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard regard equality with God as a thing to be used to his own advantage but he humbled himself. You see, God will humiliate us if we don't humble ourselves. He is so committed to us, he will humiliate us. Ask some of the biggest names in evangelical Christianity if God doesn't have a way of humbling us by humiliating us. But he would prefer that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us at the proper time. Humility is doing things that your flesh would say is beneath your pay grade. It's not on your job description. It's beneath who you are. That's pride. Humility is doing things your flesh says is not a part of your job description. Humility is loving people your flesh says are beneath you, socially, racially ethnically, they're just awkward people, odd personalities, very difficult to carry on a conversation with them. Your flesh says, associate with people like yourself, the people that are doers and goers and uh, and so forth. Uh, Praise be to God, He didn't do that. (laughs) Jesus didn't do that because there's not much in us like Him and he came looking for us. So humble and mounted on a donkey. Now you, you, you can't lead if you're not able to admit you're wrong. Uh, I, I noticed when I came up, I, I couldn't see her from down there, but Aaron Austin was up here singing. I think it was Aaron. Aaron's on our, uh, on our building team. You've been praying for uh, she's a uh, highly skilled in marketing and finance, been invaluable to the to our team. We're on the verge of bringing something to you. You've been waiting. We've been meeting hours after hours after hours after hours. And a great group of people. We, we've got some some things we'll bring before you before long for you to decide congregationally what what our next steps will uh, will be. But about. Two years ago, I'm slow as molasses, as you know. About t- two years ago, I had our staff form a team. Dr. Elif led the team. I asked the team to come up with a plan, a strategy that would launch us into consideration of buildings where we would form a team, but we would have, we would have uh, at least what we felt like were some initial uh, ideas about what we need congregationally, like you can only have so many class, so many groups meeting in hallways. You can only cram so many people into into a tiny room, and so they brought back their findings to me. And the first thing I said was, "That's all. Uh, that's that's off the table. That's not even that's not even a possibility. I, I don't want to do that." And then I thought about it during the week and. A couple of folks talked to me and said, you know, you ask a team of people to get together and, and, and think about this, and then they thought about it for about a year and a half, and then the first thing you did is you didn't like the idea. <laughs> I came back the next week. I asked, my, I asked my staff to forgive me. I said, any and everything's on the table, and we'll start with where they're at. It's going to be an integral part of what's coming. I've been convinced that we need it. I've been convinced that, that, they, that they were right. I was wrong, and we're going we're to bring to you a, a, a proposal. We'll decide congregationally if we go forward or not. You can't lead and think you're right all the time because you're not. And I can tell you I'm not. And Jesus is humble, riding on the back of a donkey, And here in this most monumental of moments, for the very first time, the crowds are giving him the attention, the affection, and the worship that he deserves. Notice in verse 35 through 38. Oh man, it's just like it it happened yesterday when you read this. And there they are, and they're quoting from Psalm 118 in verse 38. Blessed is the king, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. He's getting the worship he deserves, finally, fully recognized by those with eyes to see that he's the king. And then as they quote the latter part there of the verse, praise in heaven and glory in the highest, that sounds so much like the angels. Remember the angels on the night that he was born, they said to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest. And peace on earth with those with whom he is pleased. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. (laughs) This This is a moment of magnificent celebration. And yet there's the Cold Water Committee. The Cold Water Committee says, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. It's his disciples and the Galilean pilgrims that had seen his miracles, extolling his virtues magnifying his person. And the people who knew the Bible less best said, this is inappropriate activity. This isn't right. Silence them. Shut them down. Uh, the Pharisees, and some of the Pharisees were scribes, but the Pharisees committed to live according to the laws of Levitical purity. The Pharisees committed to living according to the oral laws. The oral laws were those rules and regulations that weren't a part of the Bible, but they made them equal to the Bible. So you have the Bible and you have the oral traditions. You have the rabbinical teachings. One is as important as the other. These these men knew the Bible better than any people in all the world. They were known for prayer and for piety and faithful uh, worship attendance on the Sabbath day. And yet they were on a fast track to hell. You can know the Bible and go to hell. You can keep a lot of rules and regulations and go to hell. The great thing is that even a Pharisee is not too too, uh, far removed that Jesus can't save them. Think about the Apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee. He would have hated all of us because we were Gentiles first. Secondly, he hated Jesus Christ and he wanted to destroy the church. There was nothing in him or about him that would have led him to the point of salvation except God intervened. And just like this on the Damascus Road, just like that, he was struck down by the Spirit of God and Jesus spoke to him and he was converted out of Phariseeism to Christianity. He became a faithful, devoted follower of Jesus, although he had been complicit in the murder of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. We're thinking Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, maybe the most famous Pharisee of the day. He was maybe the most prominent teacher of Israel in his day. And when he he goes to Jesus and Jesus says, you must be born again, he says, this is insanity. What are you talking about being born again? He he didn't get a single thing that Jesus said. But then in John chapter 19, when Jesus' body is being taken from the cross and going to be washed and cleansed and wrapped in the burial clothes by Joseph of Arimathea, there is Nicodemus. Who would have ever thought? He came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3. And he left spiritually confused and dumbfounded, now in chapter 19, in broad daylight, when only the most courageous of person, like Joseph of Arimathea, is going to associate with a crucified criminal like Jesus. There is Nicodemus. So as hard-hearted and as difficult as the Pharisees were, uh, Jesus can reach Pharisees, and Jesus says, you don't understand the monumental nature of the moment. If they are quiet, the stones will cry out. He's speaking hyperbolically, he's speaking metaphorically, he may be speaking literally, I, I, I don't know. But the very stones will cry out. This is a moment that shouldn't be missed. This is a moment that goes beyond any moment in my prior, in my prior ministry. Matthew tells us, Mark tells us, Luke tells us, John tells us, all four of them say, this moment shouldn't be missed. Anybody who's going to hear anything about Jesus needs to know about this moment. It is the greatest of moments, the most significant of moments, the most monumental of moments. And then Jesus stops and begins to cry. I want you to notice, secondly, the brokenhearted anguish of King Jesus as he weeps over Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It would be like I think maybe I, I told you this before at our at our fortieth wedding anniversary, we gathered all of our family at a big at a big dinner and we're in a in a in a in a private dining room and I get up and i 'm going to give a speech and talk about about my uh, about my wife and the blessing that she has been to me and the gift she has been to me. And I got out about two words, and then I cried like a baby. My, I had one granddaughter on one side, she grabbed my hand, and my wife on the other side, she grabbed my hand, and, and there I, I sat down. Had it all planned out, ready to say, I saved it for the 50th. Nevertheless, that's not the tears that he's crying here. The tears that he's crying here are tears about lostness, about hard heartedness, about coming judgment. He he predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in AD 70. And when General Titus rode into Jerusalem after the walls had been breached, he didn't ride in on a donkey. He and his men rode in on war horses. Listen to what Jesus would say on Tuesday afternoon in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 and 38. On Tuesday afternoon, Jesus would say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones God's messengers, stones God's messengers, How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate. In what must have been one of the greatest moments of Jesus' life, humanly speaking, up to that point, he broke down and cried uncontrollably over the destiny of the people in Jerusalem. And you'll notice the reference to the children that Derek read to us. There are going to be a lot of parents one day. They're going to reject the fact or are going to, are going to uh, regret the fact they chose career over family. Lake House over church faithfulness. Nothing wrong with the Lake House, you know. You know what, I, what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with going to the Lake House. There's something wrong when week after week, weekend after weekend, month after month, we get to a point in the evangelical church that 50 percent attendance is considered full time active involvement. That's where studies are today. Studies today are saying if a person attends church 26 weeks out of 52 weeks, they're fully, actively engaged members. Praise be to God, you don't believe that, and neither do I. But choices have consequences. Decisions matter, and he mentions the children here. There were going to be children in that city when it was overrun by the Romans. Jesus has a heart for people. I hope we do. Let me give you a couple of final thoughts. Then we're going to sing together a final song. The first thought is this. If you have positions of leadership in your home, job, or church, is your, your demeanor like that of servant Jesus, the servant king? Do you have a heart to care for people, a heart to serve people? Are there things that you choose to do that are not in your job description, so to speak, beneath you in your fleshly thinking? Jesus shows us exactly what it means to lead, whether we're on the job, in the home, or on the church. Servant leaders wash feet. They don't just preach sermons. And you won't find in many leadership books a chapter on foot washing because it's not usually commended by leadership books. Secondly, is Jesus weeping over your your soul? If you don't know Jesus, He has a heart for you. If you don't know Jesus, He loves you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Is Jesus weeping over your your soul today? You may say, well, Pastor, I've not been a very good person. That's all right. You don't have to have been a very good person. You might think, well, Pastor, if I could just get a few things squared away in my life, I think I'd I'd be ready for Jesus. You don't have to get anything squared away in your life to be ready for Jesus. Jesus is ready for you. Jesus will change you. But he's waiting for you. He's waiting for you to come to him. He's waiting for you to believe in him. He's waiting for you to turn. That that means to repent. Turn away from living for yourself and turn and, and head toward him. Because just like in the story of the prodigal son, if you start running toward him, I can tell you he's already on his way towards you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be thinking what you're thinking. You wouldn't be feeling what you're feeling. You wouldn't be contemplating what you're contemplating. He's always previous. He's always, he's always prevenient. Preven- he's always first. He always takes the initiative. If you're thinking about it, he's already headed towards you. Now, why don't you head toward him this morning? If you're a guest with us today, or you're a regular attender, and that, and that strikes a chord with you, we've got connection tables in, in either lobby, and we would love to talk with you privately, confidentially, without manipulation or coercion, just about where you are in your spiritual life. If you're a guest, we'd love to talk with you as well, but particularly if you've got a, a spiritual need. I'm going to ask you to stand, and then we're going to sing a A final song together and have a final prayer. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for this episode, for this event in the life of our Savior. Thank you for the way that Luke presents it to us. Thank you for the focus in Luke that we've been able to glean from today. Thank you for the picture, the portrait, the snapshot of Jesus that we see, humble and riding on the back of a donkey. Father, there's, there's something in that all of us need to learn. There's something in that all of us need to embrace. And Father, we pray that you would help us to embrace it and emulate it in the way that we are at home as kids or parents or siblings or how we conduct ourselves in the church or in the workplace. We want Jesus' name to be lifted high. We want it to shine brightly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.